This morning we are continuing in the book of Jonah. We're up to Jonah chapter 3, and we're going to look at the entire uh, chapter 3 this morning as our main text. So Jonah 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is God's word for his people this morning. So the question I want to start off with today is one, it's on your blue sermon handout if you, if you have that, but it's one I want us to consider as we approach this, this passage. It's what is the best way to approach people outside the faith with the message of salvation when they don't think they need to be saved? Right? We sang a lot this morning, our God saves. We who've come to know Jesus are convinced that, that Jesus is the way of salvation. But those who are not involved in the church think they're fine. How do you approach them? How, how do you get their attention? And there's three assumptions that kind of come with that question. Three things that we as, I would say, evangelical believers profess. One is... Everyone needs the salvation that only Christ can offer. That, that there is a need for salvation. That we're, the default position of people is at enmity with the God of the universe. And we need to be set right with him in order to avoid being shut out from God's presence for all eternity. And Jesus came and he's the only one through which we can return to that relationship with God the Father that we were made for. So that's the first assumption. There's, there's a salvation that only comes through Christ. The second one, re, receiving that salvation requires an individual response. I think sometimes the idea of Jesus as the Savior, especially at Christmas time, it almost feels like the salvation he came because he's the savior of the world. It's like he pulled a blanket over the entire world and, and now everyone's automatically saved. 
But we see in the scriptures that no, we have to individually respond to, to the salvation, to, to receive it ourselves. That it's not a general thing that applies to everyone unless we do respond. That's open to everyone. But, but it, there must be that individual personal response. The third part of that assumption is that mental assent is not enough. What is needed is heart repentance. Just assenting to a set of beliefs is not really receiving the salvation. That, that what God needs to do is get a hold of our inner being, our heart. And that we would put our trust in Jesus, our, our inward trust, not mental, but our heart's trust in him and become part of his people. So those are the three assumptions I'm going with. And, and I don't have time to kind of argue for each one. I'm kind of stating them at the beginning this morning. But that goes with that question, how then, given those truths, do we, do we approach people out there who think they're fine and we are concerned that they're not because they've not said yes to Jesus in their hearts? Today's passage, Jonah brings the message of God to a hostile people, to the city, the great city of Nineveh, the Assyrians. And these are people outside of the Jewish faith. It was, a, it was a long way from Israel where Jonah served as a prophet. And, and so we'll be looking at is, is the way Jonah does this is, this, is this the way God wants us to approach the people in our world? Let's review the situation. So Jonah is the runaway prophet. God gave him the message to take the word of God to the Assyrian Empire. Nineveh is the capital of that. Instead of going east to, to Nineveh, he gets on a ship and heads west. And God sends the great tempest that, that rocks the ship. And it says, the only way for the tempest to stop, Jonah tells the sailors, is for you to cast me overboard. Jonah's ready to die. Um, but God does not let his prophet die. Instead, he sends a great fish, probably a whale, to swallow up his prophet and save him from drowning. And not only save him, but begin to bring him back the right direction. And so Jonah ends up, the, the, the Jonah 2 end, or, uh, ends up with him, the whale spits Jonah out on to the shore in the Mediterranean coast. So Jonah's back where he started, and then the word comes again. This is where we're now in Jonah 3. All right, Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh, and bring the message of God there. And so this time Jonah is going to do it. What attitude do you think Jonah might have had? Now that he's, he's going to have a two-month journey or so to, to probably by camel going from the coast of the Mediterranean all the way inland to Nineveh. What attitude? It's possible he was joyful. He's, he's like, I can't believe God gave me a second chance. I had really screwed up. And this time, Lord, I'm ready to serve you. And maybe he's going with a joyful heart. Maybe he's just fearful. Maybe he's like, I do not ever want to spend three days and three nights inside any animal ever again. You know, maybe if I don't go this time, he'll send a giant camel to swallow me. Like, maybe he's just like, dude, I'm not messing with, with God again. I'm going to go, whatever. 
Or maybe he went resentful. Kind of like a teenager might do when they're forced to do, clean up their room or do their chores. Not that my teenagers would ever be like this, but I've heard of such teenagers, you know, who uh, sometimes, you know, they do the minimum amount of work, like they move a few things around and say it's clean. I've heard of such theoretical teenagers. So maybe he went resentful. And he's just going to do the minimum amount. So as we go through the story, maybe you can decide which of these three fits Jonah the best. He goes to the great city of Nineveh. This is the capital of the Neo-Assyrian Empire in, in Egypt, right? How God redeemed them out of Egypt and brought them into the, the good land. He's saying God is willing to, to save people. Um, Jonah could have honored God. And still fulfilled the, the word God had given them and presented the truth. And maybe helped the Ninevites understand. But instead, he just simply said, judgment is coming. All you got left is 40 days. Do you think? Would you expect that message to be effective? Right? Like, I mean, wouldn't you think that the, the Syrians might say, we have a great army that says otherwise, right? You know, who are you to tell us this? Um, that's the kind of message that might get you tossed into a lion's den, right? So you wouldn't expect it would work. And then how much time does Jonah put into this? It says he, he goes a single day's journey. We, we know it takes three days to cover the whole city, but it says Jonah only does this for a day. Now, whether he only planned to do it one day um, and give up, or maybe he started one day and things were so happening that he didn't need to go any further. But, but neither way, Jonah does not seem to be putting a whole lot of effort into this, this mission opportunity he has in the great city of Nineveh. Yet, look what happens in one day. It says, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They heard the message of Jonah and believed it was from God and believed it would be true. And they responded. It says, they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Now, that's interesting. You think, okay, the greatest, in other words, the poor, middle class, and the, 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 the aristocracy. A lot of times, if you'll follow missions history, that when the mission, the word does take hold, it's often in one subgroup of people. Maybe the, maybe the people kind of in poverty respond to the message, but the up, upper classes don't, or vice versa. Maybe the intellectual class starts to hear the message, but it leaves behind the other people. But here, you see the society as a whole hearing and responding at the same time. And then it says it spreads lightning fast. In that one day, the word filters up all the way to the king. I was thinking about, like, if you start a fire, and we do campfires a lot in our backyard or when we're camping, and, you know, you got to be really careful, right? You, 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 you get your little bit of kindling, and you, you might light a little piece of paper, and you use the paper to light some cardboard, and you use some cardboard to light some sticks or a pine cone, and you slowly build it up, letting one thing catch the next thing on fire. And that's usually how you would get a good fire going. Um, a lot of times, 
ministry efforts go that way as well. Like, right, you know, you get something started and that helps you build and it slowly grows. This was like dousing it with lighter fluid, tossing a match on and in one day, the whole city is repenting and then the word goes all the way up to the king and what does the king of Nineveh do? It says he... He, he believes himself and publicly repents for his people. So it says, what is he, it says he arose from his throne, and he, it says later he sits in ashes. So he gets off his important pedestal of authority, and he sits in ashes as a sign of, of repentance. It says he takes off his, his kingly robes that mark him as the ruler of the people and instead puts on sackcloth which marked him as under the rulership of another, under the rulership of God. And, and so he responds with, with mourning and repentance. And, and think about it as him. If, if he really believed this is true, then he as the king had led his people to destruction. He's cut to the heart. Kings and presidents don't tend to, to do that kind of thing. Hardly ever. I mean, isn't the, the, the guiding political principle right now, never admit you're wrong? Um, just spin the situation to make yourself look better. Set the blame on other people. Throw them under the bus. But this king has been cut to the heart. He takes responsibility. This can only happen by the inner conviction of God's spirit. That's when you know it's real that he's really responding to God, even a God he doesn't know much of anything about. Repentance. It's a word we use a lot in church world. It comes up in the Bible. Sometimes people just think, well, repentance means you feel bad or you feel sad or you feel guilty. That's an aspect of repentance. But really what repentance is in the, in the right way is it's a conviction of the heart where you see yourself and you see the things you've done from God's perspective. You see things that maybe were, were always true, but you had, you'd kind of glossed over them before. You didn't see it rightly. Now you see, oh, wow, I'm, I'm a sinner. I'm, I've done wrong. I've hurt people. I've, I can't believe I did this. And you see things as God does. And it leads you, first of all, to mourn the truth, the mourn what you are. And then it leads you to want to change. And that's the situation we have here with the king. And then he makes it official. He issues a public proclamation. He is going to lead his people. He's led them into destruction. He's going to now lead them into repentance. And, and he orders them to pray and to call out to this God that they're just being introduced to. He orders them to mourn and fast, not celebrate. They are going to pray and ask God to forgive them and, and not just put on an outward show, but to do everything they can to signify that they, they're, they want to, to, to change their ways. They even have their animals wear sackcloth. Did you catch that part? Let the beasts wear sackcloth. I want to know who had that job. You know, hey, Jimmy, um, got a job for you. You know, see that cow over there? Like, you got to put this on him. You know, the sackcloth. Like, 
Be like, you want me to do what? You know, just imagine how that played out in the whole things. Those are king's orders. And here's the, the interesting thing. They didn't even know for sure it would work. Right? It says, verse 9, who knows? God may turn and relent from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. They didn't know if their repentance would actually help. Jonah had given them no assurance. Didn't even mention the possibility that God might forgive them. He did not include that in his, his, his message. He simply asserted unavoidable destruction. There's a side question that comes in this. Would the powerful Assyrians, this empire of the day, care what, what some god far away would say to them? Why would they listen to Jonah in the first place? I mean, they didn't follow the God of Israel. They had their own gods. Ishtar is the name of the, the Assyrian goddess. Um, that was the, the, the goddess who's kind of the, as Athens had Athena, so Nineveh had Ishtar. Where the, the God of Israel was Yahweh, the Lord. And so, and Israel was a pretty minor people. Why, why would the Assyrians pay attention to what the, the God of the Israelites would say? My brother has a theory. So it, it so happens, maybe I mentioned this, my brother's also a pastor, a preacher. And um, it's a surprise to our family. But um, so we're, we're both preachers. And one time, it so happened, we were both preaching on Jonah at the same time. So we compared notes. And he discovered this historical truth. He's also, he's also like a history major. And, um, and so he discovered that at the same time frame of Jonah, we don't know exactly when Jonah was preaching, but it's, we know about when, um, that there was a solar eclipse in Assyria um, that went right near Nineveh in 763 B.C. They know this from uh, both historical records and the astronomy people can, can do that stuff. And in the ancient world, eclipses were, were significant. They, they affected people because they didn't, you know, know how, it, they assumed it meant something big was happening. And so maybe it could have been, this is very much speculation, maybe this eclipse was a sign to the Assyrians the gods are unhappy and destruction is coming. And then maybe Jonah came right in that time frame. I don't know what led them to respond. But we see that Jonah, this reluctant prophet, God must have done something to, to make the message resonate. Because this guy who didn't want to go is the most successful evangelist in history ever. Right? One day of preaching, an entire city repents. Like, this is, this is just, the, it's in the most minimal message you could ever give. God is saying something in the story to us, isn't he? He's trying to tell us something, even by the, the extremes for, through which is happening in the story. And, and what he's showing, I think, is the very thing Jonah prayed for. Do you remember how Jonah ended his prayer in chapter 2? Salvation belongs to the Lord. Right? Jonah prayed it. God showed it. He did what only he could do. No, no cleverness of our own could do it. No... No ingenious strategy can come up with a way to do what happened. God made it happen. 
Salvation ultimately is about God's work of the Holy Spirit. We talked about the question, how do you, how do you get to people who don't think they need salvation at all? The only one who could open up their hearts and prepare them to hear the message is the, the God who created them, the God whose spirit is engaged. We as Christians, we have the indwelling presence of God's spirit in our life. But God's spirit is also at work, maybe in a different way, among the people of the world. It talks about bringing conviction and bringing them to the place where they could, could see and understand that Jesus truly is the Savior. God is showing here that salvation belongs to him alone, and unless he works in someone's heart, no matter how well presented our message is, no matter how great the preacher, it's only going to matter if God's Spirit goes beforehand and opens the door. Jesus said, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself, all men and women. See, Jesus was lifted up on the cross to be the Savior. And, and, so, and so he's now, through his, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus, he is now at work drawing people to himself, drawing people to have a chance to hear that message in a way they could understand, and so they have the opportunity to respond. And the work of ministry, the work that we do of a church, we need to always keep this verse in mind, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the, says the Lord. With whatever we're doing, we are called to align our work, our service to God and the kingdom to what he is already doing. We don't have to figure it out by our great intelligence. We have to keep our eyes open to what he's already doing. And then see where he wants to plug us in, in that opportunity. If, if God's effort, if God's not working ahead of us, what we're going to do is just going to be fruitless anyways. But if God is behind it, if we're jumping on to his thing, then who but knows what God can do. So brothers and sisters, we need to, to be praying. Praying for people praying for the things we do, praying for hearts open to the message. We need to make our plans, not just with our own wisdom in mind, but we need to hear his wisdom and what he's leading. So ask, be attentive. God, how are you at work around me? Who's your spirit working on in, in the people in my life? And just, just be ready to, to, to allow God's spirit to speak to you to say, maybe you should give this person a call. You ever see God's spirit work that way? That someone just is on your heart and, and you do that. Or maybe, who does God want me to invite over for dinner? Or to go do a hike with? Like, that's how it works. That's how God is at work in our world. Back to this passage. Um, verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. What good news. We have a God who is not reluctant to save, but delighted to include people into eternal life 
That's what he made us for. We're not made for destruction. And God is not looking for reasons to keep people out. He's looking for true heart repentance. And when he sees it, he opens the doors. He opens the door to his life. In Revelation 5 or 4, it talks about, and the door to heaven is opened. Right? Jesus says that I have the keys to the door. It's been opened for those who are ready to follow God's way in. 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. It's that heart turning that's needed to go through the door. And that's what God is looking for. Back to our question that we started with. What is the best way to approach people outside the faith with the message of salvation when they don't think they need to be saved? How do we get to that? And what I want to do is I want to turn to two songs, um, both with Christian messages, and I want to compare what they say about this question because both of them ultimately address it. One is from my day in the 90s. Song number one, it's called Jesus Freak by DC Talk. There you go. Yeah, this, this song, I mean, this song got me, would get me pumped up. It still does. Um, do we say pumped up anymore or is that just a, a yeah, okay. In fact, I, I remember one, a fellow youth pastor, I was doing youth ministry at the time, he, he must have got some advanced copy and I says, you got to hear the song, right? DC Talk had kind of been a pop Christian group. Well, then the grunge, Seattle grunge song, style hit, and they, they changed their whole style to put out this new album. And so anyways, G- Jesus Freak, it, the basic idea is it calls for boldness in our faith and engagement with, with society. So I want to, hopefully this will work, but we're going to play just a, a smidgen of the song for you so you get a feel for it. Beware, this song includes both rock and or roll. So... <laughs> It's a little intense, but if we can play it. Lyrics, I'm sorry, I should have did this two minutes ago. We have sheets of the lyrics, and if you didn't get one coming in, the ushers have some in back. So if you, if you put up your hand, they'll bring you one. Um, it really does help. I, I know, you know, you get to an age, and, and you can't, like, you can, just can't hear what the lyrics are saying anymore. And so I always have my kids tell me what they're saying. So um, the, the main verse of the song is this. What will people think when they hear that I'm a Jesus freak? What will people do when they find that it's true? So the idea is this, is that if, you know, it was kind of to be, it was kind of weird to be too religious. At least it felt like it in my, you know, young adult years. Like if you were really a Christian and you you, you not only went to church, but you took the stuff seriously. You know, oh, it's okay if you go to church, but as long as you do everything else everyone does. Like, but to be different, you know, you, you, you're afraid you would get made fun of. And what does the song say to do? Embrace it, right? Be a Jesus freak, right? Let, let people know. And the, the other part of the verse is, I don't really care if they label me a Jesus freak. There ain't no disguise in the truth. It's to be bold in your life and, and in your uh, 
following Christ. And, and then what, is, what about approaching people? Well, the, the part they sang, let me read the lyrics that we probably couldn't understand. It says, I saw a man with a tat, a tattoo, on his big fat be- belly. It wiggled around like marmalade jelly. It took me a while to catch what he said because I had to w- match the rhythm with, of his belly with my head. Those are some good lyrics there. Um, but what does this t- tattoo say? Jesus saves it is what it raved in typical tattoo green. And it says he stood on a box in the middle of the city and he claimed he had a dream. Right? It's boldly confronting the world with this message of Jesus saves and, and let, your, let your freak flag fly. Right? Be, be crazy out there. Get attention. That's how you should approach the outward world with the message of salvation through Jesus. And I remember that, I still, if I want to get ready for a, a run or a long bike ride, this is, this is a song that would get me going. Um, I, it's the idea that instead of toning down your faith, go for it. Be bold, be strong. Um, and asking, is, is following Jesus worth facing a little social disapproval? Is it worth being made fun of? Is Jesus worth that? So that's song number one. Song number two is more recent. In fact, it's uh, 2016. It's by a group called uh, 21 Pilots who became big uh, around 2013, 2014. Uh, They are not in the Christian genre. In fact, they were in the alternative genre of music. However, there, there are strong Christian themes that would come up in different ones of their songs, especially this one. I believe some of their band members are Christians, but not sure. They would not call themselves a Christian band. But they were hugely popular in the world at large. And in fact, the song that we're going to play was uh, used in the movie Suicide Squad. So I remember hearing the song on the secular radio as well as Christian stuff. So, uh, and it's, it's, so when you hear this clip, be aware it's speaking from the perspective of a younger Christian talking to an older Christian who wants to be evangelistic. So that's what the words are about. Go ahead and play a bit. So note what it's saying. It's saying, all my friends are heathens. A heathen technically just means someone who's a a pagan, a polytheistic, worships a lot of different gods, Um, but it also kind of implies that they're, they're living wildly. All my friends are heathens. Take it slow. Take what's slow? He's talking about and how you approach them, especially how you approach them with the message of salvation. Wait for them to ask you who you know, right? Don't just slam them with the message. Wait for them to get to the point of asking, do we not have the verse that says, be ready to to answer those who ask you where your hope came from? Please don't make any sudden moves. You don't know the half of the abuse. So you may not realize, and this guy's saying, the person's saying, my friends have gone through some stuff. And there's reasons why they're careful about religious words and things. They've seen some bad things. Maybe they've experienced some bad things. So if you want to get to the point where you can tell them about Jesus, you have to be careful. You have to listen to them first. Then it goes on 
is talking about. We don't deal with outsiders very well. He's talking about his generation of young people. You know, right? They say newcomers have a certain smell. They're cautious. They're, they're skeptical, especially about older people who want to come with, with something they're trying to sell them on, right? They've learned. In our culture, don't we have to be skeptical of people who are trying to sell us on stuff? It says, yeah, I have trust yous, not to mention they can smell your intentions. They don't want to be someone's project. They don't like it when, when they feel like they're being sold something. They're a project of someone. It says, realize, if you're going to try to reach my, my friends, you'll be sitting next to a freak show. They may have tattoos and, and weird stuff all about them, and you may be just tempted to just say, ah, they're not worth it. Isn't it interesting how the, the, the word freak then flipped? It was Jesus freak. Now, now you're going to be sitting next to the freak show. You'll have some weird people sitting next to you if you're going to try to reach my friends. And you'll think, how did I get here sitting next to you? But that's what it takes, coming and sitting next to them, coming to, to and it says, don't forget, all my friends are heathens. Take it slow. So those are the two different songs. It's like they're completely opposite poles of how to approach people, how to answer that question we've started. Um, each of them have a verse that goes with it, and I kind of forgot to, to mention. So the Jesus freak verse is um, Mark 8, 8, 38. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. So that's a Bible verse that says, be a Jesus freak. But then the um, 21 Pilate song talks about how you approach people, take it slow. It says, Colossians 4, 5 says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of every opportunity or the best use of the time. So live wisely in how you approach people. Which song is right? Right, if we had to pick which t-shirt to wear, which t-shirt should we, would we wear for this? Which one resonates with you the most? Um, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, Jesus freak has always resonated with me because I know there could be a cost to following Christ in this world. And I know sometimes I felt like to follow Christ meant being different than everybody else and being ready to, to face that, um, not being ashamed of him in any way. And so I, I, I appreciated that song. But Jesus Freak has a look-at-me quality to it as well, doesn't it? It's like, be extreme so people notice. It's all, there's a little bit part of it, isn't that showing off your faith? Um, it, there can be a performative aspect to that, that side of it, that, you, that you, you emphasize your extremeness just so you get noticed. It also can push people away. It can do more damage than good as you try to engage people who are very cautious about things that are spiritual, being cautious of being sold something that they're not sure they can trust. The heathen song advocates a listen-to-them priority. Hear what they are saying. It doesn't say don't talk about Christ, but listen first. Um, be Give thought to what they're, they're doing. Understand who they are. Because we want, before we're going to listen to what someone says, we want to know who they are and, and whether we can trust them. 
I think there's a danger in the heathen's approach that you can be so worried about offending someone and so cautious in the approach that you kind of minimize Jesus. And, and so you sideline him so that you can maybe show how cool and relevant you are with, with the, uh, the, the other people of the world. So I think both songs are needed to kind of speak to us, to, to know in the boundaries. What I want to end with is remembering what Jonah 3 teaches us. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jesus has been lifted up and will draw all men and women to himself. We believe he is at work. We don't have to be clever enough to figure it out because <laughs> we won't be. We, we, don't, we don't have to come up with some grand strategy. We have to be aware of the Spirit's leading. We know that ultimately the, his, in the inner conviction of his Spirit has to be at work for, for lives to be changed. And we have to be ready to be there when God taps us on the shoulder and says, be there. Now speak. Listen. Be, be aware of what I'm doing. So that when God leads, we're ready to give an answer for the reason we do believe. So I have a closing challenge. This week, I want you to set a special side, set aside a special time of prayer in your own life. Wake up early one morning, or however it would fit you best. Stay up late some night. Give God at least 20 minutes, maybe more. And pray for the people in your life. The people at work or school, the people you are on uh, PTA with or whatever. Just start to, I mean, just go through your life and start to think about the different areas that you're involved in and just start writing down names. Get a journal, notebook, whatever it was, and just start writing down names. And as you do that, lift that person to God and let God lead you from there. That's all. Let God lead you from there. Let's see what happens. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are quick to forgive. You are not reluctant to save, but you delight when people turn to you. And so, Father, just show us. Help us pray for the people in our lives around us that we might be in tune with what you're doing in their life. Lord, sharing our faith is intimidating. It can be scary. It can, it can build up a lot of fear. Lord, take away that fear and give us a godly boldness to, to stand for you and to love others in your name. Amen.